please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 and verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, our amazing God is a God who makes himself known by doing wonders. Exodus 15:11 says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And that word wonders occurs often in the Bible, but God alone is the God who performs these Wonders. Sure, there are counterfeit wonders. Sure, there are uh, demonic deceptions. Sure, there is this Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8 who seeks to perform wonders to inspire the awe of men and draw them after himself and his idolatry. But true miracles, true wonders are performed only by God. One scholar says of this term wonder that it generally refers to a miraculous event through which Yahweh, that's the one true God, reveals his power in history. And that's what God's doing when he performs wonders. His wonders are clothed in historical occurrences. And these historical occurrences that take the form of wonders performed by God, tend to be these great epochal-making events that define and shape history as we know it. And so God's wondrous deeds accompany the important historic events that bring his gracious revelation to mankind into greater fruition. And this revelation that he's making of himself to mankind, it's done in an incremental way and at various stages through redemptive history, all leading up to a great point of climax in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what's the greatest miracle that God has wrought in the history of the world? You probably know where I'm going with this. The greatest miracle... Was it the exodus of this enslaved couple million of Hebrews 
They were dominated by the most formidable power of the ancient world and were absolutely helpless to liberate themselves from the yoke of that pharaoh. Was it bringing them out? Was that the greatest miracle? Maybe it was the plagues, the cursed judgment plagues that God poured on Egypt, turning the water to blood, pouring out the hail mingled with fire, slaying the firstborn of the mighty of Egypt. Or maybe it was the splitting of the Red Sea as Moses is on the verge of that sea and the armies of Pharaoh are closing in on him and Israel and Moses begin to cry out to God and God says, why are you crying out to me, Moses? Lift up your staff and part the waters. Or maybe it was when Joshua prayed that the sun would stand still and the, and the Lord heeded the voice of a man as he had never done before. And the sun stood still in the sky, prolonging the hours of daylight so that Israel could slay the rest of their enemies and win that battle. Or maybe it was later as the king prayed and the prophet Isaiah uh, for, uh, uh, declared this sign and the sundial actually turned back. Or maybe it was the raising of the Shunammite son from the dead. Or maybe it was making an axe head float. Or maybe, in fact, it was the bodily assumption of Enoch into heaven. Whereby he escaped death altogether. Well, those are all wonders. Miracles. That should provoke our admiration. But the greatest wonder, the greatest miracle that has ever occurred in the history of salvation is the incarnation of God, of the Son of God, when God became man. And that's what we looked at last week in John chapter 1 and verse, verse 14, where it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this wonder is really so different from the rest. If you think about it, the rest of these wonders and signs and miracles of God, they're openly exhibited. They are displayed with extraordinary demonstrations that are obvious to the eye of the beholder. But this wonder of wonders in the incarnation is utterly paradoxical in its manner of manifestation. Because it's veiled, it's cloaked in a robe of humility. It's invisible to the carnal eye. Jesus looked like any other man, but it's perceived by the eye of faith. It's the most extraordinary example of God's power made perfect in weakness. And so let's take a look at Matthew's account of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and consider its meaning for us. Note in the first place the providential circumstances that surround the birth of Christ. Verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Well, these words follow in the gospel right after the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, which traces the lineage of the Lord through the line of Joseph, tracing it all the way back to Abraham and to David. And you'll notice what Matthew's doing, how he prefaces his articulation of the genealogy with this specific mention of the fact that Jesus is son of Abraham, son of David because he stands within this line of these great redemptive historical promises of God as he is the one who embodies the very fulfillment of those promises of God to his people. And we might think of what relevance is the genealogy of Jesus through the line of Joseph when Joseph was not his biological father. You ever thought of that? Well, to answer this, we simply have to reckon with the custom of the Jews at the time, because it was understood by the Jews that the law enjoined men to marry from their own tribe. 
at least it was a common practice. And so Joseph, being a just man, as the text says, would have probably taken a wife from his own tribe for the line of Judah. Therefore, the descent of Jesus through the line of Judah, from which Jacob had prophesied in the book of Genesis that the Messiah should come from the line of Judah, Joseph was directly in the line of Judah and marrying in his own tribe. That means that Mary as well would have been from the line of Judah. And so Jesus's inheritance of the bloodline of Judah and of David would have been through Mary, his mother. From her, he inherited the blood right to the throne of David, to the very throne of the kingdom of God, the throne of the entire world. And the descent of Jesus through the line of Joseph was by legal inheritance. And so the legal right to the throne of David was not through his mother, but rather through his adopted father. Since Joseph was a direct descendant of David, and since Joseph adopted Jesus as his own son and child, Joseph, having that legal right to sit on the throne of David, would have been inherited by Jesus through Joseph. And so Jesus' blood right to the throne is through Mary, and Jesus' legal right to the throne is through his adopted father, Joseph. And this legal positioning was necessary for Jesus to be qualified to be the Messiah. And God made sure to govern all of the details of the entire flow of history in such a way so as to bring this about. And it's rather quite extraordinary because if you look at the genealogy of Christ, uh, Matthew does something that's quite unconventional when it comes to the customs of the Jews at the time. He includes these several women in his genealogy, Tamar and Ruth and Bathsheba. And two of those women in particular were not paragons of virtue. And yet Matthew is showing how the grace of God was working all along, even triumphing through the sovereignty of God over the failures and scandals and sins of God's people. This is grace triumphing over human sinfulness. And so our Lord was born at an optimal time in human history, a time that was very carefully, very meticulously, providentially orchestrated by God to bring about the fulfillment of his redemptive plan for the ages. The Apostle Paul calls this moment in history when Christ came the fullness of time as he contrasts the dawning of the new age in Christ with the bondage of the old order of this fallen world. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And while Paul, when he says that, has prophetic fulfillment in view, the God who was fulfilling his plan had carefully governed, again, the entire outworking of history to bring about the specific circumstances that were necessary to bring all this to pass. And Matthew says, now the birth of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God experienced human birth. He was actually, literally, historically born. And he was born into a world and at a time that was astonishingly conducive to the mission that he came to do. 
everything was previously primed by the all-wise and sovereign God to prepare the world for the revelation of his son. The culture, the language, the geopolitical superstructures, the international infrastructures, the completion of the Old Testament canon, the reconstitution of Israel after the captivity, the continual oppression of the Jews. It was all optimally orchestrated by the hand of God, and it was all crying out for the coming of Messiah so that he could effectively accomplish redemption and so that it would be rapidly announced. To the whole world. Consider the circumstances of the Hebrew world, which God orchestrated and which Christ was born into. The Old Testament scriptures were complete. The entire canon was done. There was an internal inherent sufficiency that pertained to those scriptures. They clearly teach the gospel. They clearly teach the gracious promise of God. They clearly foretell of the coming Redeemer. They even foretell of his humanity and his deity, although it wasn't so expressly clear as it came to be in the fullness of time. 4,000 years of human history had already transpired, and for 4,000 years, the people of God were laying hold on that promise, that proto-euangelion of Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman should crush the head of the serpent, who brought in the curse. And so the Jews are studying the scriptures. The people of God are poring over these scriptures, searching what or what manner of time that Christ should come, what he would look like, what his work would look like, and what would be accomplished by God through him. These scriptures after the exile were read in the synagogues every Sabbath through apparently the reforms that were instituted by Ezra the scribe. The institution of the synagogue made provision so that every Jewish family would have access to the public reading of the word of God week after week after week, a word that was utterly saturated with this prophetic anticipation of Jesus Christ. And so during the days of Jesus in this Hebrew world, messianic anticipation was at a fever pitch of expectation. This was the first time in history, in fact, that we see all these false messiahs that were being raised up, men that were proclaiming themselves to be the expected deliverer of Israel from various groups, and they were typically these insurrectionists which would seek to bring about some kind of political uprising in the tradition of the Maccabees in order to liberate Israel from the dominion of Rome and from the ongoing vestiges of their captivity from which they had never been restored. And so everybody's longing for deliverance. Everybody's expecting the Messiah, so much so that these false messiahs are popping up. You see, the expectation was at a fever pitch. But consider also the scene of the Greek world. Because centuries prior to this, as foretold by the prophet Daniel, God raised up this man, Alexander the Great, who was a military genius who pretty much conquered the entire ancient world in faster time than any man had ever uh, managed to have such, such success in conquest ever before. And Alexander the Great was learned in philosophy, and he implemented these reforms in society in order that society would be thoroughly Hellenized, we call it. They would be thoroughly made Greek. And so Greek thought, Greek culture, Greek philosophy, and yes, the Greek language became implemented and became the standard throughout the vast majority of Europe, the greatest empire of the day. The culture was united. The language was united, preparing the way for Christ to come and for the apostles to be raised up who had spread forth from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, proclaiming the gospel, yes, in the Koine Greek 
tongue, the common Greek language that everybody spoke. First time in history that such a thing ever occurred, preparing the way for Christ. Consider also the Roman world, this vast empire that was raised up. You know, Rome implemented this. They, they constructed this vast system of interconnected highways. There was a saying in the ancient world that we still know today. All roads lead to Rome. And so Caesar really developed this extensive highway system throughout all his empire in order to consolidate his influence and his power throughout it and to ensure that his armies could travel, to ensure that messages could be sent back and forth through this highway system. A highway system, by the way, that Paul and the apostles would take advantage of as they took the good news of Jesus Christ and traveled to and fro from city to city proclaiming this good news and sending epistles to spread the word of God. See, it was all prepared. And in fact, there was even preparation for this concept of gospel, because not only does gospel euangelion have a background in the book of the prophet Isaiah, but it also has a background in the Greco-Roman culture, because Caesar would actually put forth promulgations that he called gospels. Good news, Caesar has had a son. There is an heir to the throne. Or one specific writing we have from the ancient world is, good news, it's Caesar's birthday, and he's reigning, and his reign is going to result in the accruement of benefits to all his subjects. And so when the gospel comes about, and Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and the apostles are proclaiming this gospel, you see, it was done vis-a-vis this concept of the gospel in the Roman world. And what it was doing was subverting and supplanting the false gospel that was popular in Rome, that was celebrated religiously in all the major cities of Rome as worship to Caesar. And so it was a direct confrontation to the so-called greatness of man who had vaunt himself up and dared to usurp the glory of God. It's part of the reason why it was so controversial to speak of this gospel that Jesus is Lord because the entire Roman Empire saw it as a threat. And in fact, the controversy that was stirred up over this clashing of concepts of gospel really resulted in the news of the gospel spreading far and wider and faster than it otherwise would have. If you know anything about controversies, when they get stirred up, they tend to be spread around rather quickly in terms of the news of them. And so the whole world was prepared, the Hebrew world, the Greek world, the Roman world, and even in retrospect from our modern world, we can see how this was the optimal time for God to send his son. Because, as he said, when he came, the son of man, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the context of that is that the rulers of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And they dominate them and subject them by force. But Jesus says, it, it shall not be so among you. Jesus came not to dominate through coercion, through the sword, or through physical force, or through merely geopolitical measures. But he came to usher in a glorious revolution through humility and love. Through the sacrifice of himself, he conquered the prevailing ideology of the mighty Roman Empire and the Greek world, such that within several centuries, Christianity became the dominant ideology. And so everything was providentially prepared. Yes, this is an obscure corner in the ancient uh, Middle East. This is in Bethlehem. Mary conceives this child miraculously. It, it happens on a, at, a, at a silent night as, as we've sang. And yet, this was the most momentous event in the history of the world. Everything was prepared for it, and it would shape history forever. 
But notice in the next place we have here in our text a miraculous conception. A miraculous conception. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. As his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. That is, before Mary and Joseph had any conjugal intimacy, she became miraculously pregnant. And the evidence of her pregnancy became conspicuous so that she could no longer hide it. And we are told that this happened during the time of their betrothal. And betrothal was a curious cultural convention among the Jews, and the Romans practiced betrothal as well, but not in quite the same way as the Jews. It has its analogy in our present-day practice of engagement. And so when two people had consented to be married, a marriage, by the way, of the days of Joseph and Mary was ordinarily arranged by their parents, well, these people would formalize this commitment to marry through a legally binding act of betrothal. The father of the bride-to-be would state the price of endowment, as it was called, and the bridegroom would pledge to pay it. You couldn't just take a man's daughter for free. <laughs> and ordinarily, the bridegroom-to-be, he would give a down payment on that bride price up front at the time that their betrothal was formalized. And so their commitment to be married would be announced before at least two witnesses, followed by the groom's declaration of pledging to take on the full responsibilities of a husband and to care for this woman in the place of her father. But the bride and groom, upon that moment of betrothal, would still live separately. They would still be under the auspices of their parents until the time when they should consummate their marriage. And so premarital privacy between them, between bride and groom, it was actually frowned upon in Galilee. Uh, bride and groom would not spend time alone together once they got betrothed. They would always be within parental and public supervision. And so it's unlikely that Joseph and Mary ever spent any time alone together uh, up until this period of time when she was found to be with child. The period of betrothal usually lasted one year. And once a betrothal was made, only a legal divorce or death could break the contract. And so betrothal was like a you know, a kind of very serious engagement. But it was a lot more binding than what engagement is for us today. And so while they were betrothed, she was found to be pregnant. And this would have brought reproach for Joseph and for Mary. But Joseph knew that this child wasn't his. And so, naturally, the most logical explanation for what had happened is that Mary had been unfaithful and had committed adultery. And yes, to violate the betrothal was considered adultery. Deuteronomy 22 specifies death by stoning for such an offense. But capital punishment in these days, the first century, it was rarely carried out for a defense like this. And so Joseph had two options. He could take Mary before a public court and before a judge, and he could make a public scandal of this openly. Or he could call in two witnesses and issue a divorce privately. Matthew tells us in verse 19 that then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. And that word secretly can be better translated privately. He sought to do a private divorce among a small group of an inner circle of witnesses in order to protect the reputation of Mary. 
because a woman who had violated her betrothal through unfaithfulness would have a hard time finding another husband, and a woman that couldn't find a husband in that day would really be condemned to a life of poverty and misery. And so he was mindful of her. He took the merciful approach. And it's curious what Matthew says here, because it says that it was because he was a just man that he sought to take the merciful approach. And so that teaches us something about biblical righteousness, does it not? Because being truly righteous doesn't necessarily mean insisting on the full force of the letter of the law. Those who are truly righteous know that they are so only because of the grace and mercy of God toward them. And so they will, however imperfectly, strive to reflect the character of God in their dealings with others. And so Jesus told us to be merciful just as our Father in heaven is merciful, Luke 6, 36, and we see that gracious character reflected in Joseph himself. What a contrast between Joseph and so many of the Pharisees who were always fault-finding and trying to nitpick on Jesus and the disciples. Well, verse 20 says, while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so here is the divine confirmation to him that Mary had not been unfaithful. Now, we don't know if perhaps Mary had already told Joseph what happened prior to him hearing this announcement from the angel. I think it's likely that she did. But it's also likely that Joseph had a hard time <laughs> accepting that. And so this announcement from the angel was perhaps not the first time that Joseph heard of this, but rather the divine confirmation of what he had already heard from Mary. And as Joseph reflected on the scriptures, no doubt many texts came to mind because there was an abundant testimony to the divine identity of the Messiah in the scriptures of the Tanakh that he was acquainted with from childhood. And that should have led him to put the pieces together and to make sense of what was happening. For instance, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 to 6 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. All the Jews would have understood that to be Messiah. And it says, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called. Yahweh Sidkenu, translated the Lord our righteousness. And so the Messiah to be born bears the very name of God. And he is the God who embodies the righteousness that the people of God need to be redeemed from their sins. Divine Messiah. Ezekiel 34, 23 says, I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them, my servant David. It's not literal David. This is the son of David who comes in his line. It says, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Well, he says one shepherd, one shepherd. And yet the scriptures teach that Israel only has one true ultimate shepherd. And that's the Lord our God. The Lord is my shepherd. You'll remember how God was provoked to jealousy when Israel was crying out that there would be a king, and they sought by haste to make Saul a king. But he wasn't a king after God's own heart, until God then raised up David, who was after God's own heart. But it was clear when God raised up David that David wasn't the ultimate king, but that David was a surrogate ruler, a vice regent who was administrating on behalf 
of God. God alone is the king of his people. And to be a shepherd, the shepherd of Israel in ancient Israel, uh, the metaphor isn't just drawing after you know, the image of men who care for sheep and fields, but actually the primary context of what it means to be a shepherd in terms of royalty in Israel is to be the king. Well, Ezekiel says, I will raise up one king, the descendant of David. He will be the king of Israel. And so there's implications of divine Messiah in that. How about Daniel 7.13? I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Direct access to the presence of God. No other man can have access to that presence without falling down dead. And here's the Son of Man, and he rides up to the presence of God on the clouds. On the clouds. He's coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, according to the Old Testament, God alone rides on the clouds of heaven. Psalm 68, 4, sing to God, sing praises to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds by his name, Yah, short for Yahweh. Deuteronomy 33, 26 says, there is no one like the God of Jeshurun, that's Jerusalem, Israel, who rides the heavens to help you and in his excellency on the clouds. So the Son of Man riding on the clouds, that was a very clear hint of his identity as divine Messiah. Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. He has no origin. He always has been. And then Isaiah 9, 6, which is so clear. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Divine Messiah. Luke chapter 1, verses 34 to 35, gives more detail about what happened when the angel appeared to Mary, was Gabriel, and she said, how can this be? How can I be found with child, seeing that I have not known a man? She had not had intimate relations with any man. She was a virgin. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Miraculous conception. And so the Word, the second person of the Trinity, became incarnate through a miracle of the Holy Spirit. The deity of Christ joined in a bond of permanent union with the humanity, a bond that could not be dissolved, that would never be dissolved, not even by death, a bond that will continue forever in glory as he remains as our eternal mediator. Well, the early church wrestled quite a bit to understand this truth. The biblical view of the person of Christ is, again, He's one divine person, the eternal son, who takes on perfect manhood and a bond is permanently forged between the two natures of Christ, his divine and human natures. They're joined together in one person. So one person, two natures. The Nicene Creed of 325 said of Jesus that he was of one being, with the Father, using the Greek word usia. He's one usia with the Father. He's one substance with the Father, literally. He's of one essence with the Father. The very metaphysical substance and essence, this divine essence, this godness of God is the same with the Father as it is with the Son. He's of one being. And it says that he was truly 
He was incarnate to the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became truly human, the creed says. That's historic Christianity. This doctrine is stated clearly and succinctly by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2.9. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But there are many detractors early on who tried to rationalize the miracle and they ran into major problems. One fellow by the name of Apollinaris of Laodicea, he was bishop there, died in the year 390. Well, he argued that the eternal Logos, the Son of God, took upon himself a human body and a human soul, but not a human mind. His mind, Apollinaris said, was the mind of the divine Logos. But a human being, the problem is, a human being without a human mind is certainly not a human being, but only partially human. And so Apollinarianism rejected the full humanity of Christ. And it itself was rejected at the first council of Constantinople in 381 A.D. Well, then another fellow by the name of Eutychus came along. He died at about 456 A.D. He was a monk who led a monastery in, precisely, Constantinople, right where the great second instantiation of the Nicene Creed was drafted. And he taught that the human nature of Christ was taken up and absorbed into the divine nature so that both natures became commingled and a third kind of nature resulted. So he denied that Christ has two distinct natures conjoined in one person. Rather, he taught there is only one nature, only one nature in one person. Well, the church rejected that doctrine as well as it reaffirmed historic orthodoxy because they understood these doctrines to be striking at the very foundations of the faith. But then there is another fellow by the name of Nestorius. He died at about 451 AD. And he became the Archbishop of Constantinople. And so he had quite a bit of influence. And Constantinople, by, by the way, at this time, uh, it was declared in the days of Constantine, after which it derives its name, to be the capital of the Roman Empire. So Constantine moved the capital from Rome to Constantinople, and that's, that's why this city was so important. And that's why you see these figures with so much influence and these, these, these heretics uh, that are exerting their influence there. Well, Nestorius argued that Mary cannot be called the God-bearer. The God-bearer, the one who bore God. And that was contrary to the church's understanding of the virgin birth. And so he emphasized and distinguished the two natures of Christ so much that it amounted to an assertion that Christ was two persons, a divine and human person, rather than one person with two natures. And so the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD condemned the doctrine of both Eutychus and Nestorius. And listen to some of the words of what the Pastors at that council declared. They stated this. He was born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God. Theotokos in the Greek, the mother of God, the, the God-bearer. They're not saying that Mary was the mother of the divine nature of Christ, but they're saying that, he's the, that she was the mother of the human nature of Christ, and therefore, since you know, there's not two persons in Christ. She can be called, in a sense, the mother of the person of Christ. Therefore, she is the, the God-bearer, the mother of God, the Theotokos. And so they're refuting Nestorius here. And they said, according to the manhood, the mother of God according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures by no means taken away by the union, 
but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, they're refuting Apollinarianism and Nestorianism and Eutychianism. It's, it's all these ancient false notions that they're refuting as they are declaring this succinct creed of praise to God. And that's why that Chalcedonian Creed, it's, it's just so doxological, as the Nicene Creed also is. The, these are declarations of worship, of praise to God. This is what we believe. This is what we confess. This is who we understand Christ our Lord to be. And I realize that all oh, that's a mouthful, but it's essential that we know these things, and in fact that we be acquainted with them like the back of our hands. Because, again, they are the foundations of our faith. They are the core truths of Christianity. They are the doctrines that are unequivocally confessed by the universal church. Western tradition, Eastern tradition, Reformed, Protestant, and Evangelical traditions all confess these truths about the miraculous conception and the person of Christ. Hence, these truths are the test of orthodoxy, and they summarize the content of the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And it's these truths that are seminally contained in our text when it says that that which is conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. But why else does it matter so much? Why does this matter so much? Well, for one... We need to know all this because it's a true teaching of the word of God. And we should know it because there is nothing taught in the word that is unprofitable for us to know. If it's there in the word, there's profit in knowing it. Two, the errors that we discussed, Nestorius, Apollinaris, and Eutychus, these errors are still alive and well today. They haven't gone away. They just take on new names and they get articulated in slightly different ways and sometimes they get softened and sometimes they're, they're variously understood, but they're still out there today. And so knowing the heresies of the past is vital to discerning the errors of the present. And three, the virgin birth and the divine and human natures of Christ are necessary for our salvation. Every one of those truths expressed in the Chalcedonian Creed is necessary for our salvation because it ties in directly to what Jesus Christ accomplished through his atoning death. And if you're visiting here and you want to know why, then I would simply point you to the recording of last week's sermon. So instead of repeating the explanation of all that, I rather want to build upon it as I call your attention to our next point. Note... Jesus' extraordinary calling. Matthew 1.21 She will bring forth the Son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, Jesus was an extraordinary person, begotten in his manhood by an extraordinary miracle, and bearing two distinct yet extraordinary natures, because he had an extraordinary calling. His mission was to save his people from their sins. And who he was in the fullness of his person was essential to his ability to fulfill this mission, to actually rescue us and to actually redeem us. And from the moment of his conception, we see here in our text that his mission, his calling, what he came to do, it was expressly pronounced. He came to save his people from their sins. And so here we're getting at the true meaning of Christmas. It's not just a delightful story about something that happened once upon a time. 
but it's about the miraculous intervention of God and the incarnation of the Son of God to rescue us from our damnable plight in sin. Now we hear, when we hear something like that, when we read in the words of this gospel, the question that faces us all is, well, what kind of response does this invoke from us? Indeed, what kind of response does it invoke within us? As we hear the words of our text, he will save his people from their sins. Do we truly love a statement such as this? Or do we matter-of-factly despise it? Do we esteem these words as the best news in the whole world? Or do we view these words as rather a nuisance or as something rather unimportant and insignificant to the way we live our lives? The only fitting response to such a momentous biblical declaration as this is nothing less than faith, hope, and love. Faith that appropriates these words to ourselves, to the salvation of our souls. Hope in these words that we will one day experience the fullness and vastness of everything that these words declare. And love, love for these words, love for our Savior, and love for our God who made such a glorious and sufficient provision for our need in our fallenness. And so to receive these words as we ought, an indispensable prerequisite is the illuminating, convicting, regenerating power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Otherwise, us being bound in sin and wedded to the fleshly pleasure that these words confront, we would prefer our sins over the liberty and deliverance that is here promised as God pledges to deliver us from them. Well, most people today, I think, when they hear words such as these, cannot help but to gnash their teeth. They don't want salvation from their sins. Maybe they'll consider salvation from other things, but not salvation from sin as sin. Thus a statement of our text comes to them as an offense. It comes as a threat to the things that they hold dear. It comes as an encroachment upon their autonomous, self-willed, self-asserted agenda. They say, yes, if this Jesus can offer me freedom from my pain or freedom from my poverty or freedom from my temporary misery, then maybe I'll consider it. But they're not interested in any notion of the anointed King Christ breaking off the bondage of the yoke of sin. Because that would mean they have to depart from their idols and from the carnal lusts that they hold dear to their hearts. Others, and this is a common response among professing believers in evangelicalism today, misconstrue these words into a false and empty promise. They take the words of Matthew 121 to be some cheap divine guarantee that they'll be saved from the eternal consequences of their sins, but hardly not anything more than that. They think that Jesus came to make sure you'll have a happy eternity. If only you'll accept him. If only you'll pray this little prayer. If only you'll make this decision and vote for Jesus. They tell us he did all that he came to do. And now it's up to every, uh, every individual, every person to decide whether they will accept him or not. They think he'll bring you to heaven quite irrespective of how you live your life in the here and now. But the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't need our approval. He doesn't need your approval. You need his approval. As our text declares, he didn't come just to make salvation possible. He came to save, to make salvation actual, to actually and truly and sufficiently and effectually save his people from their sins. And not just from one little aspect of sin, 
or one major aspect of sin even, it's eternal consequences, but from our sins in their fullness, from all that our sins all are, all that our sins entail, from every aspect of our sin and sinfulness. And so let me try to unpack this for you by delineating five aspects of the biblical teaching of salvation from sin. And for the sake of facilitating our memory of these five aspects, each one will be alliterated, beginning with the letter P. In these, the Lord Jesus provides the salvation for our problem and our entire relationship to God. First, Jesus came to save his people from the penalty of sin. Penalty. This aspect of his saving, saving work has reference to our relationship to God as just. God is just. Justice and righteousness is his very own holy nature. And for us in our alienation from God to be restored to a right relationship with God, an upright, positional, legal standing before him, Jesus Christ had to come to save us from the penalty of sin by paying that penalty himself through his death on the cross. And he did that because at his death on the cross, you notice how our text says he will save his people from their sins, not literally everybody that ever existed or everybody that would exist. There is no universalism in this text. It's his people that he came to save because when he went to the cross, it was the sins of his people, Isaiah 53, that was laid on him. There was a particular specific imputation of the guilt of sin whereby the sin of the elect of God was legally reckoned to be the sin of the representative Jesus Christ. And he bore our condemnation on Calvary's cursed tree. The blessed one became a curse for us so that we can receive his blessing. That's the grace of justification, which teaches that God justifies the one who does not work, but rather justifies the ungodly, Romans 4, 5. It's a legal declaration of God over us by which God declares us to be perfectly righteous for Christ's sake. But second, Jesus saves us from our plight in sin. First from the penalty, then from the plight of sin, or we could say from the peril of sin. This aspect of our saving work, yes, it overlaps with the first one, but it particularly has reference to God as our judge, our relationship to God as our judge. At the final day, God will judge all flesh, and he will judge all flesh to be either justified or condemned well jesus in satisfying the righteousness of god and being made the righteousness of god on our behalf has saved us if we trust in him from our plight in sin in this way the final verdict of justification that will be declared on the last day in the resurrection of the dead has already preemptively been declared over all those who embrace Jesus Christ by faith. And so we're not left wondering what's going to happen on the day of judgment, but we can have this absolute certainty and assurance here and now already that we've already been justified and that the eternal outcome will be favorable for us. But third, he saves his people from the power of sin. Yes, sin, sin is a power. It's a dominating power. And this aspect of his saving work has reference to our relationship to God as holy. God is the holy one. And in his holy nature, he cannot have any favorable uh, countenance towards sin. There is no fellowship with God in our state of sin. And so Jesus' atoning work 
makes satisfaction on our behalf in order to secure for us the power of the Holy Spirit who actually makes Christ to indwell our hearts by faith and raises us up from our deadness in sin to the newness of life so as to progressively sanctify and transform us as we die more and more unto sin and live more and more unto righteousness. As the proverb says, the path of the righteous shines brighter and brighter unto the perfect day until that perfect day comes when we will enjoy perfect holiness in the sight of God. Fourth, he saves his people from the pleasure of sin. The pleasure of sin. This aspect of his saving work has reference to our relationship to God as the pure and infinite one who is eternal and unchanging in his holy affections and his holy affections. God doesn't go undergo emotional changes. There's no variation in God. He's immutable. But God has infinite, eternal, holy affections, like love. And the salvation of Jesus Christ, because of the provision of the power of the Spirit that he secured through his life and death, renovates our hearts through regeneration. This is the miracle of regeneration. And he begets within us holy, uh, holy affections that reflect the very heart of God so that we can abhor and hate and despise the sin that we once took so much pleasure in and so that we can love and cherish the righteousness and the, the commandments of God that we once despised. And fifth, he saves us ultimately from the presence of sin, from the presence of sin. This aspect of his work has reference to our relationship to God as the giver of life who is holy and good. He made all things good, and he doesn't just redeem our souls so that we can fly away and get out of here, but he redeems our entire humanity so as to free us, flesh and soul, from the very presence of sin in eternity. So we can enjoy that beatific vision, that unveiled face beholding the glory of God in eternity as we reflect that glory. And so he saves us from the penalty of sin and the plight of sin and the power of sin and the pleasure of sin and the presence of sin and justification and sanctification and regeneration and, and glorification. This is an all-sufficient salvation provided by an all-sufficient Savior that has made full and abundant and adequate provision for our entire need and our entire humanity and our entire fallenness. That's what the name Jesus means. Yahweh saves. He saves us because we are unable to save ourselves. We are powerless to save ourselves. We are helpless to save ourselves. But when we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And finally, my last point, and this quickly, prophetic convergence. Notice how Matthew ties all this in, verses 22 to 23. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Quoting Isaiah 7.14 from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Matthew applies it directly to Christ. There was a son of Isaiah in the immediate context of Isaiah. There was an initial step of fulfillment toward that prophecy. But as Matthew looks back in retrospect, now that Christ had come, he realized that there is a deeper, fuller meaning to the Emmanuel prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. And he saw that that deeper, fuller meaning is ultimately only realized in Jesus Christ in the virgin who conceived this child who is born, who is God with us. And so what does that mean, God with us? It means God with us. 
You see, the goal of redemption is not just, again, so we can escape out of here and go to heaven. The goal of redemption is that the cosmos would be redeemed and that the cosmos, that a new earth would be the eternal home of a new, redeemed, glorified, elect people who would inhabit it as God himself dwells in their midst. That's the goal. It's God with us, not just us going to God. It's God with us manifesting himself to us in the fullness of his presence and joy. And so Matthew's looking back. And what does this reveal about his view of history? Well, it reveals that his view of history is one Again, that is orchestrated by God. The sovereign God is governing history. He created the world for a purpose, and he will fulfill that purpose. And hence, Matthew keeps using this, this phrase in his gospel. This happened in order to fulfill, or that it would be fulfilled. Fulfilled, 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 fulfilled. Again and again in the Gospel of Matthew. Because all that the prophets foretold is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ as the focal point of human history. And so Matthew has what we call a linear view of history that has a beginning and an end, an alpha point and an omega point, and that is governed by God to bring about this plan. That's not the view of modern man's, uh, that, that's not modern man's view of history. The modern secular view is this atomistic view. Everything's just this random occurrence. It just happens to happen. There's no necessary, direct, meaningful, purposeful correlation between ancient events and modern events, for, for instance. That's a Darwinian view. That's a view being taught in our universities today, and it's absolute garbage. God has a sovereign plan for history, and Christ is the center of that plan. And this, brethren, this is what Christmas reminds us of. We inherit this tradition of Christmas, right? We didn't make it up. We didn't invent it. We were born into it. It's a part of our historical consciousness and our culture in the Western world. And this historical consciousness stems all the way back to what happened 2,000 years ago and what has its prologue and preface 4,000 years before that. And so remembering the miracle that it took to save us, as we stand in this historical consciousness, we understand that God is the ultimate goal of history. His glory, his purpose, his accomplishments. And out of this historical awareness, we know that the God who was faithful to make good on his promise regard, regarding the, the first advent of his son will certainly make good on his promise with regard to the second advent of his son. And for that, we eagerly await. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank you so much for this gift of love divine wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. Oh, the very God, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, infinite in every way, became this helpless little babe for us and for our salvation. What mercy, what humility, what condescension, what grace. O oh Lord, fill our hearts with joy, and may we rejoice before you throughout the rest of this Lord's Day and throughout the rest of this season, Father, as we do look to you and thank you for your unspeakable gift. In Christ's name, amen.